0: Welcome to the Edge of NFT, the podcast created by Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger, the podcast that brings you the top 1% of Web3 today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts of the business side and also the human element of how Web3 is changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. You have questions about blockchain? Like, how big of a block can you chain without throwing out your bag? Or, have you received that chain letter? How did you block it? And does blockchain taste better barbecued or deep fried? (laughs) Luckily, you don't have to ponder these quandaries alone anymore. Because Blockchain Training Alliance is here to answer them and also train you in real-world blockchain issues that will impact your business's bottom line and oriented future forward along the ley lines of the most important tech humanity has perfected since harnessing atomic energy So hurry and sign up for the Blockchain Training Alliance course that best fits your needs at blockchaintrainingalliance.com. Use discount code of for 50% off and start your next block today.
1: Hi everyone, Josh Krieger here live. It's the edge of NFT again, and I'm here with none other than the chairman of Animoca brands, Yatsu. It's great to see you in person. It's been a minute, but it's more so like passing by each other. We've been flying through Singapore Korea, and now, actually we're not in Dubai, we're in Ross, but we've been in the Middle East region for a few weeks, running into each other. You've traveled the world. Why is this region important to Animoca brands and to the overall blockchain landscape?
2: So first of all, the Middle East is generally super exciting. Demographically, it's a very young population. A large part of the gaming community actually is coming from here in terms of emerging. When you look at a place like Saudi, I think something like 85 or 86% of the population is under the age of 36, and they love gaming. It's one of the highest ARPU markets in the world. Interesting. Right? When you even look at other markets, like, say, like, Turkey or Egypt, young market as well in terms of population, very much interest in all sort of things. Same
1: type of games as, like, Asia? Or, like, have you kind of delved into what types of games they like to play here? Well,
2: most of the games people play here are sort of first-person shooters and RPGs, very similar to what you see in the West and some games from Asia, but I would say mostly it's Western game studio games that are playing here, but a deep interest and a hunger to create new, very specific domestic titles that actually speak to the local market. And that's actually the opportunity that we and others see as well here in terms of a strong, thriving local market that actually has a hunger to develop it. I mean, take Saudi as an example. It has an esports ministry, and it has a sovereign gaming fund, I can't think of many countries, if any, that, for instance, has that kind of commitment, for instance. And when you think about the level of investment that happens, for instance, here in the UAE, whether this is in Abu Dhabi or whether this is in Dubai, in things of like digital assets and sort of Web3, broadly speaking, this is one of the most sort of diverse investment places that you can find and interest in the space, for instance. So, yeah, I think there's many reasons to be here for for all sorts of reasons.
1: And for others as well that are Coinbase is considering this region you touch upon like why it's important for non-gaming companies are you advocating they also sort of have a presence here
2: i think so i mean first of all particularly when you see what's happening in places like the u.s people are sort of wanting to go somewhere where you have a little bit of clarity where you have, a clarity, where you have know what's going a on playbook some yeah, kind playbook. of playbook yeah, you yeah to say hey you know this is okay or even if it's 1300 pages give yes, us that's a true. playbook tell us what to do and right now yeah. Because of the way that things are being enforced uh, without clarity. Even the likes of giants like Coinbase are finding their way having to sort of consider offshore places where they have at least some clarity so they can actually conduct these valuable services that they do. So I think to me though this region and other places like Hong Kong for instance, are similar in this regard actually is positive because it's also good to have a little bit of global competition. At the end of the day people need to know where the talent is going to go and if the talent can't stay in one place because it's hostile, And they'll go somewhere else because talent is super mobile. And I think the regions like this demonstrate that it's fluid. I mean, just look at how many people from around the world are in Dubai, for instance. It's super international now.
1: Yeah, we've seen that people move quickly. They're willing to sort of migrate. And that nomadic tendency takes over. You want to find a place where you can innovate and be creative and not have boundaries, right? Correct. So that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of innovation, I remember fondly our first show where I got to meet you. Where you shared your story of sort of your fight with Apple in the yes, early days. Exactly. And like the fight doesn't stop, right? So just to paraphrase, you had some multiple award-winning games at the top of the charts and then you got kicked you
2: off. Got Absolutely.
1: Right. Yeah. And so pushing the envelope is sort of in your DNA, in the DNA of culture of Inamoka brands. And you're doing that again with with Life Beyond. Right. Right. And for those that don't know, this is sort of a Bitcoin powered game coming up. Why Bitcoin? Why does the world need a game powered on Bitcoin?
2: So first, great question. One of the things that we've all said before is we look at L1 L2s and generally blockchains as kind of like national economies or nation states in and of itself. Okay. And so Bitcoin is a country effectively. It has a very certain culture and it has a very certain dynamic that takes place. And that's true basically for a lot of blockchains around the world. Is this apples, oranges and bananas here? No, it is about how we sort of uh, sort of enter the markets and cultural context that we can then maybe export out afterwards. But if you want to sell into a market, imagine if you're making shoes for Switzerland. Well, you don't want to just make shoes just for Switzerland. You want to sell it to America. You want to sell it to Germany. You want to sell it to China, for instance, if you could. But if you were only ever restricted to one ecosystem, then you wouldn't be able to sort of expand your market. So that's one aspect of it. In comparison, one of the areas that wasn't possible before ordinals was a way to store digital culture. Right now, in the past, Bitcoin was very much the store of value, perhaps the preeminent store of digital value. But now with ordinals, you can store culture, you can store heritage, you can inscribe all sorts of interesting things about sort of who you are and sort of the prestige or whatever it is that you're building. So
1: that's kind of the zeitgeist of gaming is this culture, right?
2: It is culture. I mean, everything we do in gaming, which billions of people do today, is actually trying to sort of store those forms of digital culture. You could argue that every moment in game is a kind of inscription of some sort, for instance, right? And some of them are valuable and some of them are not. But most importantly, they mean something to you. And also, if you look at Bitcoin as a nation, there's a whole bunch of people on Bitcoin who will never leave Bitcoin for any other platforms, for instance, as well. So it makes sense to offer services there. When you think of market value, Bitcoin is also the one that has the biggest one of all. So,
1: and no one argues about it being decentralized across you know, the exactly. world. So exactly. like that gives you sort of our freedom that's to right. be creative and to onboard that's from right. every
2: country. And the way that I see of it is that the kind of games that launch on Bitcoin will have a very, very different flavor about them because of, that was to translate it this way, the nation that is Bitcoin, right? In the same way that when you launch a game in America, it's going to look very different in terms of its feel and organization and commercialization as a game that would launch in Japan or China, for instance, because of the community that's there. And that's the same thing. Having sort of a a game like Life Beyond that focuses itself on the Bitcoin community and wants to be sort of inside the Bitcoin culture will give it a specific sort of narrative and a specific, I would say, domestic, as it were, domestic edge, that you just take a generic game and just say it's one size fits all, it's simply not going to make
1: sense. you guys are not sort of stopping there when it comes to innovation. You put a considerable amount of focus and energy into creating Mochaverse. Mm. We have a monthly segment with them called the Mocha Moment. It's, it's a ton of fun. It's wonderful. Getting updates from everyone in the team and sort of sharing this very fast-moving locomotive train, I would say. At the same time, there's some really exciting developments that haven't really come to fruition yet with these Mocha IDs. So yes. I've reserved mine. I've shared with everyone I know an opportunity for We just did a contest, but people are curious, what are Mocha IDs all about? And why now with this particular movement? So
2: first, what Mocha ID is trying to do is create basically decentralized IDs as soulbound tokens as a way to basically create really sort of a way to, not just onboard Web2 users, but also provide an identity layer that can be decentralized and can be truly yours in a manner that for things that we've learned in our own experiences. For instance, take things like KYC, a very simple example. We had to KYC with several games because of the value. But well, what if you had an ID that was already pre-KYC? You don't have to go and KYC a new wallet each and every time. You just simply know that the customer is already KYC, and it's okay. And one of the problems, of course, we had in the past was that, you know, people KYC and get the wallet, and then they sell the wallet, right? And then you actually don't know if it's a real user, for instance. Yeah. Whereas essentially, if a soulbound token actually it does away with some of the issues of people basically doubling their identity, as it were, right? Wallets itself actually aren't an effective source of identity but a soul-bound NFT that basically represents your ID actually is much more effective and, this and way. And then there's going to be a lot of
1: perks. Like the way that Kyle described it to me, it's like airlines program on web three yeah. steroids. So the idea
2: is that there's going to be... Or I think I described it to him that way. Exactly. I heard what he said. Uh, basically, it's a way to sort of create your digital reputation that can accrete over your ID so that you can know stuff about it. And the vision really about a decentralized ID is not that we control it. It's that other people actually can now compose freely on top of it. So, imagine a decentralized Steam. What would that look like? It wouldn't be that you have to use Steam to go in. You just have to know basically who the users are and you can target them directly. And it's more of a pull marketing rather than push. For instance, every person who played a first-person shooter, I'll give you a 10% discount if you're trying a first-person shooter. How do I know you played a first-person shooter? Your Mocha ID has that record. It has that history. It has all these details about it. The point is that... You You
1: can can just be and do, as a human, what you enjoy. And people will come to you and and offer you the products and services. You don't have to register a hundred times. You don't have to sort of keep saying, hey, I did this, right."
2: right? And, you know, we have over 450 investments in the portfolio. We have also our own games and studios. All of them would be able to utilize and benefit in the shared network effect that Mocha ID will offer. Well, I'm
1: excited. That's a little bit of a poor showering. The edge of company certainly yes. has some ideas for perks we can offer this ecosystem. We look now, forward to that. It's not just limited to 8,888 Mocha owners or, right. or a subset, because a lot of us hold more than one. Yes. Which I definitely encourage you to check out, but this is for the entire world to
2: get some benefits. Exactly. And of course, the next level benefit, of course, is that we want to teach people about governance, we want to teach people about the kind of power that they have with a Mocha ID and with Mocha NFTs, like how we do it with ApeCoin governance and many of our other future token projects.
1: A little bit less invasive than having to get your eyeball scanned too. Yes,
2: absolutely. I think the eyeball scanning thing is somewhat, and again, how is that stored and who controls it and what do we do with the data? Do we actually know?
1: And what if that gets hacked because eyeballs are becoming very important identity mechanisms for secure
2: things that you don't want to tap into? I mean, the way that we think of the future of identity, decentralized identity, is that we may be a way to, connect other identity layers, but we don't know what's in it. So in other words, you as an end user would then give permission to say, I'm okay with you to take data from these 10 different sources or three different sources or five different sources, which we never have. And personally, I think decentralized identities on blockchain are going to solve many of the privacy issues that people, that places like Europe have, for instance, because now you can truly guarantee that the company that might be managing an ID actually doesn't know that much about you.
1: Very powerful concept. So you get to go home soon to Hong Kong because 8 Fest is coming up. Yes. But there's going to be a really exciting side event that Mochaverse and Animocha Brands community is cooking. Right. Can you yes. just tell our listeners about that in case they want to sort of book a
2: flight? Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to have a little event in Mochaverse. I think it's a boat trip. It's been changing a little bit back and forth, but that's kind of what happened. And Sandbox is also having a very cool event on the 3rd as well, Okay, cool. Right? Generally speaking, I would tell everyone, just come to FinTech Week because there's going to be tens of thousands of people coming in. We're sort of Web3 enthusiasts and interest, It's not just ApeFest, it's Mokaburst, it's Sandbox. And it's all these little side events. Don't just come for us. Come for the fact that everyone else is building something there around that really exciting week. Come to Hong Kong.
1: All right. Yeah, thanks for hanging out for a few.
2: Good to see you as Thank always. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Hi. We love having listeners like you because you're not only generous, but you're smart and you want to maximize the impact of your generosity. Donating money to help people can be a wonderful and selfless act but how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? You could do weeks of research to find the charities that are out there, programs that they run, how effective those programs are, and how the charity might use your money. Or you could visit GiveWell.org. There, you'll get a short-vetted list of the best charities they've found at saving or improving lives per dollar. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest-impact evidence back to charities they've found. Here's an example of how we at Edge of NFT make our charitable contributions go super far. Quick search on GiveWell's website. Found their maximum impact fund. Clicked donate. Sent crypto to their address. Done. Their maximum impact fund distributes quarterly to the charities that they believe will do the most good. GiveWell accepts a broad variety of popular tokens and provides a simple way to document your donation. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to GiveWell.org and pick podcast and enter Edge of NFT at checkout. Make sure they know you heard about GiveWell from Edge of NFT to get your donation matched.
1: Hello and welcome to Edge of NFT again, live in actually not Dubai, but Raz at the Digital Oasis Summit. It's been pretty amazing few weeks and had a lovely lunch and happened to be sitting next to someone I thought we should all get to know better. This is Yanni Maladov, also known as the godfather of Ethereum. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. We're two years into the craze, if you will, around sort of non-fungible tokens, but there's Mm -hmm. actually a long, complex, and sophisticated history. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that jumps out to me is now... It's all about the immutability of Bitcoin as a sort of potential avenue for sort of creating NFTs in sort of a different sort of way called ordinals. But you sort of have been around the earlier genesis of this concept. So why don't we just start there? Because I think it's a fascinating story. Tell us a little bit more about sort of. The previous 10 years, what some of the sort of early conversations were
3: about Bitcoin and what might be possible in terms of what we now know as NFTs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I discovered Bitcoin in 2011 and in 2013 I was working on a colored coin wallet. Nowadays you would say NFT art issuance wallets. Effectively, it was maybe the first wallets and platform which supported artists to Timestamp their artwork and issue editions, which we called back then like these NFTs according to the let's say the art world standard so and yeah. what,
1: what made you decide to do that to and, go down that journey because at yeah. that time i feel like even more so than now people thought of bitcoin as sort of stored of value mm-hmm. in a more traditional like fintech concept of sort of a new version of sort of democratizing capital right so why did this even come to mind
3: so i decided to become like a blockchain crypto what? or back then bitcoin professional or so was not much talk about blockchain either back then it was bitcoin and a few altcoins and i found somebody who wanted to do a project in the digital art world experienced entrepreneur from canada we met each other in the infamous room 77 bitcoin bar in berlin which was the first brick and mortar store which ever started accepting bitcoin already in 2010 and i pitched to him this kind of like idea of this project so he wanted to do something with Bitcoin and digital art, also because of his wife, who was an art world professional, a curator for physical and digital art, as far as I remember. So this is how these things got together. And I was also working with Vitalik on some other, let's say, things. We were hanging out in Calafu in summer 2013 and also in Milano. Like, rather, let's say, living the crypto anarchist Uh, lifestyle. How old
1: was Vitalik at that time? I mean, Uh, he he
3: must have been like 19. Something like this, yes. Uh, I think he was just barely an adult, like a legal adult. So did
1: you have these conversations over coffee or or drinks
3: or in one of your housing at that moment? It was over laptops, I would say. Laptops. So nothing... No. We didn't have (laughs) co-working spaces really then, right? Or were there? It was... So Kalefu was like a community of people who left, let's say, the society to live in a abandoned factory which was half burned down as well and like really really building technology for let's say people who are completely out of society this was one of the let's say the main ideas behind this community i mean for us it was rather let's say a temporary So we were there, I think, for around 10 days or two weeks. I remember Vitalik sleeping on a super thin uh, mattress, kind of like on the floor. It was super basic living standards. And yeah, we were living a very different lifestyle than we are today.
1: I'm actually curious: Were there ramen noodles being served in this communal kitchen, or were you all eating fresh food to sort of spark all these creative ideas?
3: It was freshly cooked food by the community chefs, and I remember one thing that we need to wash our dishes with this two-bucket methodology, essentially. So there was no running water; it was just two buckets, and one dirty bucket, one clean bucket, and then you dry the dishes. So yeah, same way how usually it's get done in, in Thailand on the street. But I also remember that Vitalik back then. He was waking up really early as well and spending all of his day on his laptop and sometimes we went for walks this was like the distraction we had and we climbed together we climbed montserrat next to barcelona between Calafu and barcelona there's also a picture of us standing on the peak and yeah this was all before ethereum quickly after our Calafu,
1: how old were you back then if you don't mind me asking this
3: was 2013 so i was 26
1: Okay, Okay. so you are the older mentor,
3: seen a few things,
1: but still sort of inspired by some of the same principles as Vitalik around sort of democratization of the global economy, right?
3: Sure. I mean, Vitalik was famous for writing the Bitcoin magazine. I think at this point he wrote more than half of it. We originally got in contact with his co-founder Mihai Alicia who uh, brought Vitalik into the Bitcoin magazine as a writer. I also became a co-founder of the Ethereum project. But back to the NFT story, like, uh, I still need to try to find the old private keys from 10 years ago. It would be fascinating to activate these NFTs. I mean, they are on the blockchain. We have the proofs, we have the timestamps, we have the hashes of the artwork. It's missing the keys. Yeah, but But we never had expected that there would be such a, let's say, craze around NFTs and they would be sold for many millions or some of the NFTs would be selling for many millions. Nobody would have expected this in 2013, otherwise obviously we would have just uh, framed everything and saved it. Maybe one of the lessons here for your audience is to never give up and just to hold on to really great original ideas because at some point if the timing is right, it might be a really good opportunity to get some value out of the work.
1: Yeah, I mean, So now we have the movement around ordinals, and there's a lot of folks in the community that think that there's some benefits of minting off of Bitcoin. There's also side chains of Bitcoin Mm -hmm. being created, the Mm -hmm. BRC21, and some more recent updates since then. Would you say that was also unexpected? And what are your thoughts on sort of where this renaissance of Bitcoin art goes from here?
3: Obviously, the Bitcoin blockchain has been used for many things, not just transactions, but prior years, like 10 years ago, it was very, let's say, not very well accepted in the Bitcoin community to do... Yeah. uh, The Maxis didn't like it very much. Yes. I was also afraid that they're gonna like crucify us because we were timestamping artwork on the Bitcoin blockchain. Now since there are so many blockchains and since, yeah, through, let's say, the increase of the block size or the indirect increase of the block size, there is more space and there is so much competition. I think, I think it's great for the Bitcoin blockchain to have more use cases. But what do you think? Like, is it more accepted now with the Bitcoin community to use it for digital art?
1: I think the answer is yes and no. I think the maxis are holding to their belief that around the purity of Bitcoin mm-hmm. as a store of value. But I think that community is getting smaller, Mm -hmm. and I think that there's more folks that are seeing Bitcoin for more than just a store of value. And I think there's a lot of folks excited about the potential to sort of do things with Bitcoin. We already know that it's fully decentralized and accepted in that Mm -hmm. manner as opposed to all the new cryptocurrencies out there. And I think this idea of immutability is very powerful mm-hmm. as a concept because you're not tied to IPFS, you're not tied to yeah. a marketplace like OpenSea, it's engraved. I think there's still sort of some exploration of how you determine different value. I know Casey's yeah. come up with some concepts. The community is sort of rallied around, I would yeah. say. But it's too early to tell. I mean, similar to back then, 10 years ago. I think that if there's anything we've all learned in this space, it's that it's very difficult to Mm. predict the future, right? And when we try, we're usually wrong, at least when it comes to this type of innovation. With that said, I'm sure there's this warmth in your heart from those early days, sort of with Vitalik and what has been created Mm. since then. Could you have imagined
3: Ethereum being where it is at this moment in time back then? Back then, like, I mean, when I was working with Vitalik, there was no Ethereum. We were actually chatting about what we could improve over token systems. So this is maybe also how Ethereum kind of like got born as a project because, I mean, we were working on this colored coin wallet project for, for Trent McGonaghy in the field of digital art, but Vitalik was also working with some Israeli colored coin projects. There was also a product called Counterparty, which I think was used a few big projects back then, and I think got rebranded into. I oh know MasterCoin got rebranded into Omni, and also Tether was first issued as a MasterCoin protocol token. So, issuing tokens on top of the Bitcoin blockchain is not exactly a new thing. This has been definitely done for more than 10 years. And what we did with Vitalik is to really target the digital art world markets as developers but it was also not our company we're just
1: predicting sort of i guess as when you saw you were around though as well when ethereum was created yeah after knowing vitalik knowing what you knew about him as a human his characteristics and sort of his technical acumen Mm -hmm. would you have predicted that Ethereum would be where it is now and would have like grown into this massive ecosystem.
3: I actually had given up temporarily on Ethereum. Like I was part of the first Ethereum Miami house where, let's say, all the initial co-founders got together. And, okay, so uh, these
1: hacker houses, these are also not a new thing. This was
3: in late January 2014 for the North American Bitcoin conference in Miami which was, I think, led by Mo. Mo was also organizing yeah. conferences in Amsterdam, where we also went to prior, actually.
1: So these side chains sort of building at other conferences, this has also been a trend that's been around quite a while, right? Yes. So now Eat Denver is all about the side chains building. So we all have this sort of deep, there's a lot of interesting history in terms of the culture mm. of crypto and blockchain that is not new. It's sort of ingrained mm. in the DNA of the industry.
3: Yeah, but I mean, you said hacker house, is not a new thing. Absolutely not a new thing. I mean, these anarchist communities, they were more like hacker houses than this Miami thing. This Miami thing was more like a business house. This yeah, was my impression. They were, they were just in
1: abandoned factories back then.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> For example, abandoned factories, or actually my, in Milano, it was an abandoned slaughterhouse management facility. It was a house of the management of the slaughterhouse, but still a slaughterhouse. Okay. Uh, it was quite beautiful in there, actually, but lots of tiger mosquitoes. You can't imagine. It's uh, Tiger mosquitoes are really, really the They worst. sound vicious. One key thing that essentially made me not believe in Ethereum early on was that it was too much business-driven and too less technologically-driven. And this is also why I started another blockchain. It's called Eternity, which is like a next-generation smart contract platform. It's not anymore that new. I also started it already six years ago. It's uh, The mainnet is live for five years now since I studied computer science and uh, was also really a big fan of functional programming as a better way of doing... Algorithms, my. Time
1: stamping, too, right? It has
3: a time stamping functionality. Every blockchain is a timestamping
1: essentially I guess what else differentiates it from other blockchains
3: eternity is written in Erlang written from scratch and the functional the smart contract language is follows the functional paradigm and generally it abstracts on a higher level also the virtual machine abstracts on a higher level so instead of having like assembler code in the virtual machine it's symbols so you can do more optimizations for running these programs on specific hardware, but you still need to do this, meaning so far, the optimizations have been done, but the virtual machine is already 10 times more space efficient, or the smart contracts, the bytecode of smart contracts is 10 times more space efficient than the bytecode on the EVM. We'd really try to innovate on every level. We also have a different mining algorithm. Eternity is still proof of work, but the clue was that it didn't really work out as we expected it, but we wanted that People with smartphones could also efficiently participate in the consensus with the uh, mining because the algorithm was not efficiently computable by CPUs. We were thinking mobile, sort of friendly at that yes, time. Yes. So
1: what's next
3: on your roadmap
1: that folks have
3: to look forward to? I think the next big thing, what we are all waiting for almost now two years is the launch of hyperchains, which is the next generation of Eternity-style blockchains and everybody should be able to launch hyperchains. It's kind of like child chains for Bitcoin, but it could be any other parent chain as well, it could be also Dogecoin, it could be also cool. Litecoin for example. So we want to make it as easy as possible that you can launch proof of stake, child chain called Hyperchain for a proof of work, mother or parent chain.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that could be really powerful as a concept. So mm. when's that coming out? I
3: hope. Soon, but this development is done by the Eternity Foundation, and since we try to be as decentralized as possible, I'm not really involved with the core developers so much. I'm giving the let's say the initial ideas and writing about things. I'm really Once again,
1: about. you're like a mentor, or coach. Yeah.
3: So I'm not giving any promises about delivery dates. I even open source the whole concept so that other people could also just implement the hyperchains consensus mechanism for their needs because we believe it's the most safe consensus mechanism because it's taking the best of both worlds proof of work and proof of stake without paying for the proof of work reusing it very, and very, yeah
1: very cool and where can people go to learn more about attorney
3: about eternity on com with an ae oh, yeah. eternity, and then there's a forum and I guess there are quite some materials nice on you. youtube and there's also documentation the hub in case people are more technical and of course github very cool and are you on twitter or x as they call it now i am on x i was ironically just asking my mask tweet on twitter was i think uh, shall i tweet more on twitter and then the rebranding took place so i, I didn't tweet more on twitter but uh, yeah the, you can find historic tweets from me um my handle is n-o-y-y-y All right. Well, Yanni, this is
1: really fun. Thanks for bearing this heat outside to find a quiet place to chat and get to know each other better. It's
3: really hot here. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, brutal. But I think your story is powerful and important for the world to know. Um, I've learned a lot today in terms of how our history is so important. We always think in the moment, everything feels different. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think understanding the history of Bitcoin, the history of NFTs is so important for the community. So thank you.
3: Yo, thank you. been a pleasure.
1: Hello again, Web3 Curious listeners. If you're tuning into our podcast, we'd love for you to connect with us on our social media channels. Let us know what aspects of the show you love and what or who you're eager to hear more about. Your insights help us refine the show and bring you the topics and guests that matter most to you. Thanks for sticking with us. Back to the episode. Hi everyone, Josh Trager, co-host of Edge of NFT, and I'm live in Dubai with a dear friend and previous guest on the show, the one and only Vesa. It's great to see you, IRL, finally, and no less in front of your beautiful art. So how are you, my friend?
4: Amazing, finally in real life. Yes. It's been what, at least two years or something? At
1: least two years. And it's because of you that I was exposed to everything going on in the Dubai Web3 scene. And thank you for sort of ushering us into Dubai. We really appreciate your hospitality and your stewardship for what's going on here.
4: Well, you stewarded me into Los Angeles, so it's the circle of goodness, I guess. What is this amazing piece of art behind us? What's going on here? From the Dubai and UAE standpoint, this is an early crypto artwork which was made in 2020 around the time when I came here first and I was introduced to the amazing Dr. Marwan and his wife Miriam who are kind of depicted over there as she was working with the Emirati space program and Dr. Marwan is the CEO of the Dubai Blockchain Center so I was honoring their patronage to be a part of it and it's the Dubai skyline that you have there in the bottom and we were discussing on how to tokenize potentially the royal horses so that was one thing. it has this liquid sort of powerful gentle feel of, yeah of what this place really is on the sidelines and since it has a mars program that's the mars rocket is the only one that is going higher than the burj khalifa so yeah and I there's, heard, there's a few symbolic things
1: yeah i heard about the program to get a colony on mars i guess next century so, it's ambitious but with ambition comes possibility so it's been a minute since we've caught up, and you're always sort of on the cutting edge as well of art and generative AI as well as Web3. What are some of your reflections at this
4: current moment in time? It's been a tough couple of years in the bear market, but as always, even in the events that we've now done, many of them like Wow Summit was the last one. Uh, yeah, it was a we were a
1: media partner for them as well just a couple of days ago
4: incredible event. They did an amazing job. It was slightly more quiet than usual. But what I enjoy about the bear markets is that you have less of the hypey type people. It's the real builders who kind of go through the bear markets and especially throughout this time. And I'm sure next year we're going to start picking back up again. NFTs are not dead. They're coming back in the next cycle and hopefully a little bit more mature and a little bit more wise way.
1: So. This is a peculiar question to ask someone that's more of an artist and you've been into digital art for a long time. You shared your perspective on the history of art and how it's sort of evolved to this point. But when you look at sort of the practical use cases for verifiable digital assets, at the end of the day, are you still super excited about the real world utility of like tokenizing something like uh, cars. I know know you have that project with Dr. Mouan. Or are there other use cases that you think are more promising? Or is it just a combination of all of the above or none of the above? Well, it's
4: a combination. I mean, how we utilized NFTs for the first run of it, I'm not too big of a fan of. I understand that's what happened to ICOs, but ICOs essentially didn't go anywhere. It's just we got wiser in how we implement them. But yeah, we have plans on essentially that digital artwork becoming a part of your identity. It's no longer a painting on your wall. It's something that you transform into a variety of different forms and we're innovating how we sell the IP and how we help with our partners, kind of our clients and collectors to become part of this new wave and experiment with us because it's difficult to see what is going to take off what is going to be the popular thing that we don't know but we have a very solid vision of where we're going in order to kind of showcase okay so here's your car this is what a villa could look like this is what the metaverse version of that villa is like doesn't this jet look cool and all of these things we have but there's another side to it which is for example this one project that i'm working with Dr. Narissa from Kogope is that her actual real passion is these orphanages in Thailand. And what we did is that, because what really got me into this space to begin with was Andreas Antonopoulos videos and the Bad Crypto Podcast guys, but in particular the, the Andreas Antonopoulos when he said that there's about 3.5 billion people in the world without a bank account. So I thinking about different implementations. So what we did with Dr. Narissa and this heavenly home in Thailand, which is a kid's orphanage place, is that we got the kids to Draw some crayons and things like that, and then we digitize them. We're gonna have a professional animator turn them into NFTs and then put them on an international marketplace. And if we have some support, then if and when some child's NFT sells, that kid directly gets some money onto their crypto wallet, as well as the orphanage itself, gets some operational funds. So imagine what you're poss- not,
1: not like the NCWA. It took them like about 80 years to decide to allow the athletes to get compensation for their value. So, I mean, that's an incredible lesson to teach orphans at such a young age that there is value in everything that they create in the world. It's just, I know you're going to explain more, but... I had to stop you because it's just such a beautiful use case.
4: Right. So it is, we try to go both the ways. It's like you have to have the top end support what it is that is the real renaissance of 3.0 on the side of, let's say, what would be the Da Vinci's and Michelangelo's. And then you have to have the actual Web3 revolution happen from the bottom up, which is this one. And what's so exciting about it is that the first critique is, okay, so maybe you have one or two who have talent in drawing. That's not the case because you need the organizational people. You need the sellers. You need all these kinds of skills that these kids are going to have that they can organize around whatever Web3 creativity is. And it's not only art. You have so many different implementations that you can get those skills already at that stage. And imagine what kind of prospects you have if you're a six-year-old orphan in Thailand at this moment. It's not gonna be the brightest future that is painted in front of you. So all of a sudden, if this kind of thing is injected into your idea stream and they start to feel what it is that they could do in order to get this ball rolling, then all of a sudden you have an organization. And that's quite something. That's exciting.
1: Where do people learn more about that project? Is it out yet?
4: Not yet. So we have digitized the material. I can send you the video of the kids drawing and doing all of that stuff over there. Definitely, but no, it's not materialized. Alright,
1: so just keep checking out Art by Vesa to learn more about that project. And what's your perspective on AI? It's another technology that's been around a long time but has evolved faster, especially with the advent of generative AI. It's the talk of the town. So what are you doing with AI and what are your overall sort of perspective on whether or not it's beneficial to creators and to the creator economy?
4: It's As always things are, it's polarizing, but it's also it's very useful and it's simultaneously very destructive because right now we're going towards a little bit that kind of dystopian vision for art at least is that the machines are generating the art and the human beings are still cleaning the toilets and that was not the intention of why we started making machines to begin with and we why do we make art? What is it about our soul and communication and connection that we want to Kind of achieve with it to begin with what is that what we try to put on canvas or any other form in order to kind of make ourselves proud about what it is that we do and make humanity around us kind of be happy about what it is that we do that it's because life is so damn difficult that then we need to have some aspirations of what we go towards and i'm not saying that you can't do it with ai because especially with ai many people can now aspire to do many creative things and I think the future of art is somewhere where we're going, is these 360 worlds where you can interact with the artwork and it kind of knows that you're there, and not necessarily even that someone is there. It knows that you, Josh, personally are there, and maybe that art experience is tailored to your preferences and views, and you get to say whether that experience is challenging for you or just beautiful, mm. or all those kinds of things. And you obviously, as an artist, don't want to paint these 360 worlds pixel by pixel. You want to have a good assistant with you in order to create it and it's gonna to totally transform the film industry as we know it in five years I don't even know if our film industry exists in ten years anymore in some sense of how we've known it to exist no. for over a hundred years
1: well so. it was just a little longer I mean they resolved the strike at least the writer's strike in a way that sort of gives the writers some longevity and sort of some protections in terms of the extent to which AI can take over writing scripts and whatnot but, but yeah, I think there's a lot more that we don't know than we know at this moment in time. But I also think there's an opportunity for creators to reach new heights with their own creativity through using AI as a, as a tool set, right?
4: Very much so. There's one common saying now that is starting to annoy me a little bit, which is this whole thing, is that you won't be replaced by AI, you will be replaced by someone who knows how to make AI. No, if you have a special effects, program that essentially does something and one person can do a whole movie you're replacing from just one movie 800 people <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so you will be replaced by yeah and don't and th- don't sugarcoat
1: yeah some of the a, realities of this technology and what yeah. it is going
4: to do it's learn sure. how to code was just around the corner now jet gpt does the coding for you so that's becoming useless so it's like the pace of evolution is just absolutely staggering
1: Yeah, so it may or may not benefit you to dive into the tools that are available right now because those tools could change in (laughs) two years. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they're releasing new products, Microsoft and Google, every week. We talk about them every week. There's like a major update. So I get it. Well, hang on for the ride at least. And where can folks find you on Twitter to keep up with what you're up to in this space?
4: Yeah, it's at ArtByVesa, V E -S S A, on Twitter and X and artforcrypto.com.
1: Good to see you, my friend. This will not be the first or the last meeting, I should say. We'll get to to hang out this week, and thank you for hanging out with us on the show. Always a pleasure. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Edge of NFT. Live in Raz, we're in the MENA region, getting an interesting perspective on what's going on here by having amazing conversations and meeting amazing people. And at this moment, I have the pleasure to talk with Juliette Sue who's the co-founder and partner at New Tribe Capital. It's great to have you on the show.
5: Thank you, thanks for inviting me.
1: So I've heard so many exciting things about what you're doing to sort of bring the community together and sort of support not only economic investment in this region, but also to cultivate partnerships and whatnot. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of New Tribe Capital and what you're up to.
5: Okay, sure. So we started here in the UAE three years ago as New Tribe Capital, and there was the whole vision behind the name. So basically, we wanted to achieve and what we heard that there we are the new decentralized tribe of innovation, like the people which are located all over the world who are united by the same idea and the same trust in the technology, the future of technology. So, and these type of people they don't let much about chasing their financial goal but to have the influence and to impact the future of technology. So that's why we heard that the UAE might be a good base. And that was when? It was 2020, like three years ago. So So
1: that's a long time. Yeah,
5: so we've got a long journey here.
1: I feel like I'm learning so much every day here, and this is a vibrant sort of place to take a little bit about the answer to my question, but what have you seen happen over that three years and what's your perspective where the region is today?
5: Yeah, so as you can see, like there is a rapid changes happening here. I remember then we started and like you know because of course our major business is investment and then we spoke with the project and we say oh we are based in Dubai. Lots of people were super skeptical because for them the good VC should be based out of the US maybe somewhere like yeah, Silicon Valley or maybe Singapore, or, and I was like, oh, we are in Dubai. Crypto
1: Valley, yeah.
5: So right now, the situation is changing completely, so then you see that we are one of the oldest and the most active VC based out of Dubai. People would love to explore more. And what is interesting about this region, because I believe only in the UAE, there is a collaboration happening between regulators, investors, projects, and business community, and institutional players. So there is a the beautiful mixture where we can see the proper mass adoption of technology. Because at the end of the day, why we are here, what we are doing here, and we try for this technology to be adopted within the traditional businesses. So this is the place where we can have the open dialogues with the regulators. So, and we also collaborated with the regulators. We are the partners of Resenheim Digital Assets Oasis. So we try to- Yeah, tell us a
1: little bit about this event and why it's happening. I got on a bus this morning after <laughs> nice. a busy night, right? Nice. Thanks to CoinW for a fun party last night. Yeah. But now we're all here and there's about 500, 600 yeah. people, mm-hmm. all change makers. Like what are we experiencing right this moment? So
5: what we experience basically is that we experience the infrastructure being built. So we are talking not about the technical infrastructure, we are talking about the physical infrastructure. We are talking about like to providing the developers, investors, the place they can set up their company, they're working run their businesses, then they have the beneficial regulations for the company. And this is through Rackdoll? Yeah, Rackdoll is yeah. the one place that they provide the regulation. So if you run any rep company, so you can set up a Rackdoll, So probably open the bank account, because I believe one of the biggest problems for the Rafa community right now, it's open the bank account for their business. Yeah, you
1: get a bank account yeah. right away. That's very powerful. Yeah.
5: So, I mean, like, yes, here we see, like, that's why it's called Crypto Oasis. So the government here is aimed to create the collaborative space with a beautiful infrastructure for all the builders, all the founders, investors. and. Build the proper ecosystem of different types of the player who involved in Web3 from different angles.
1: Very cool. So you have a slightly different sort of approach to sort of supporting your ecosystem than some of the other venture capitalists, I would say, globally yeah. with these gatherings, right? You call yeah, them new- so yeah.
5: I call it so. Basically, yeah. That is an interesting idea. One day I woke up in the morning. I was like, I need to do new tribe gathering. It's not related to the brand itself. It's basically like the idea we've got behind the brand back to the days, and now this idea is becoming so popular, and we see it as a network thing. So that's exactly. So I created the very exclusive space and the event where we have the CEO of uh, Angel Assets Oasis. We have some like C-level manager of Binance, and like lots of investors and top project founders get together. leaders of these
1: different tribes. Yeah,
5: so yeah, the leaders from this space get together in a very nice atmosphere then they have a chance to talk to each other properly and not getting lost so there were like very selected people who i just got together in one place so they had a chance to have the proper discussion over
1: there very cool yeah so i went to william mary and we were called the tribe yeah and then I had a tech company yeah. and we called our community the tribe. So I really relate to that word. And I think it aligns really well with what's going on yeah. in the space of blockchain innovation, mm-hmm. because we're crossing all ethnicities. We're crossing all geographical boundaries. And we happen to be in a desert-like climate. So exactly. I totally get Let's the see name. see why
5: we call it new tribe and basically new tribe ca- uh, capital. New tribe is one word because it's the new digital tribe. And digital, it's all about decentralization. So we are trying to create this new type of decentralized digital tribe, so those people who believe in the future of Web3 technology and it's that it's gonna happen very soon. So you
1: have your eyes on the ground here. Can you give me a couple examples of what you think are innovative projects in the Web3 space that have gotten real traction that maybe people don't know about yet globally?
5: So basically, like a lot of people globally, they tend to consider that there are no developers in Dubai, right? So, But what I've seen that they, first of all, the community of developers are growing here and then, at the same time, there are lots of projects who are relocating to Dubai because they understand that they can find the proper founders and they can find like the, the proper mass adoption here and the partnership, like you know, business yeah. development here, go to market strategy. So here is the space. Then you can go to the business development stage and to grow your company as it is, know, so, it's like a free company. So what
1: are a couple of examples of projects okay, that you so think are kicking one is,
5: like one is the one who were very like famous project because from the local emirates guys it's, it's called Myco. myco is the centralized streaming yeah. platform yeah
1: they were I, on a panel i, I moderated yes, yeah very so cool very what cool. they're doing over 4 million users
5: but see there was like there are different types of projects because then people ask me like what are the projects that you can mention based out of UAE so should i mention the project which is started in the UAE and get a global expansion or vice versa. So it should be... <laughs> 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 it should be the project for just like, you know, status somewhere. And then they came to the UAE, right? So they're like a different streams happening. Yeah. So at the same time, I can mention a few projects for a base here, and they do business development here, or something like Honey and yeah, Michael.
1: Very cool. Well, this has been fun. Where can people go to learn more about New Tribe Capital and uh, what you're up it's to? It's very
5: easy. Newtribe.capital. That's our website, yeah.
1: So check out Juliet's fund, and hopefully you have a chance to meet her if you come to this region at one of her
0: gatherings. Yeah, Thanks so for your time thank today. Thank you
5: very much. Thank you for interviewing me.
1: Okay,
0: we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs today. Thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship, so invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. Out, go to iTunes right now, rate us, and say something cool.
4: Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of NFT reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. Our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. From time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of those links. Refer to our website, www.edgeofnft.com, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, and privacy policy.